Hello, welcome back to another Friday solo episode of Time Freedom for Lawyers. Today I'm going to be talking about the difference between price and value. So price is what we pay for something, value is what we get out of it. Pretty simple, that should be the end of the episode. But we're going to be diving into how your customers perceive your services, whether they view you as a commodity that they're paying a set price for, or whether they think they're getting value out of you, how to change that perception if they only see you for price, how to position yourself if you're an employee as somebody who's providing value instead of being a price to your firm, and then how to use this concept in your everyday lives. How can we approach spending money as an investment in our time rather than as a cost on our balance sheet? Welcome to Time Freedom for Lawyers, where the goal is to become less busy, make more money, and spend more time doing what you want instead of what you have to. Bringing together guests from all walks of life who are living a life of their own design and sharing actionable tips for how you too can live the life of your dreams. Now, here's your host, Brian Glass. All right, so this concept probably is not totally unfamiliar to you, this concept of price and value not being the same thing. So price is always like the cost that's on the label of the item, whether it's a gallon of milk at the grocery store, salary for a new hire, or a high-ticket coaching program or mastermind program. Value, obviously, is what you're getting out of the program or the item or the employee. And there's a number of variables when it comes to the value, and the value is not always readily apparent upfront. Obviously, the value has to do in part with what is the thing? How good is the employee that we're hiring? How good is the coach that we're hiring? How good is the gallon of milk that we're buying? And what use do I have for that? And what's the time arbitrage for, okay, I don't have to go out and buy a cow and figure out how to milk it and pasteurize it and all that. But value also has a lot to do with what we're putting into and the activities that we're putting into the program to the employee and the actions that we're taking. And so today's episode is going to be talking about how we increase value both in our personal lives and in our business and how we increase perceived value in the eyes of our customers. So if you don't know who I am, my name is Brian Glass. I'm a personal injury lawyer in Fairfax, Virginia. I represent people who've been hurt in auto accidents on a contingency fee basis. And I'm explaining day in and day out to new clients the value of my services, which often is a very high ticket service. And I'll get into an example of that a little bit later in this episode. I think a couple of examples might be interesting from the beginning. So the example that I give most often is I joined this mastermind called GoBundance about two years ago now. So GoBundance is a a mastermind for entrepreneurial men and it's $10,000. It was $10,000 a year to join when I joined. I think the price has gone up a little bit since then, but the value is a little bit amorphous. There's not really any gurus at the top. It's not a course that you take. And at the end of the course, you're going to add six figures to your balance sheet, right? We're going to put you into pods, accountability groups, and we're going to give you some goal setting tips. But then the pod really is what's going to drive you on to the next level. And so from the outside looking in, like hard to understand value, except that there's all these really highly successful, high net worth people who are members of it and are talking about how happy they are with it. So at my very first meetup, after having spent $10,000 on this group, I 
learned a tax tip and an investment vehicle that saved me $75,000 on my taxes. So I didn't know that going in, but the value to me is seven and a half X the investment on the group. And that's just from the very first meetup. Obviously, I've gotten additional value since then, but that's an example of difficult to see from the outside what the value of that group is. Easy to see the price tag. You're going to charge my credit card for $10,000. That part's easy to see. Difficult to understand what the value is, perhaps, from the outside, if all you're looking at is the price tag. A much lower ticket example of this price versus value dichotomy is a credit card fee. So for the longest time, I was somebody who said, I'm never, ever paying a credit card fee. Why would I do that? I'm going to reap all the rewards of these cash value back cards, and I'm going to pay off the monthly charges every month. But why would I ever pay somebody a credit card fee? I started traveling a lot more recently, and it turns out that you can reap an enormous amount of value out of these credit cards, even at a $600 or $700 a year annual fee, if you're traveling and if you understand all the benefits. And so I've gotten... $2,500 of value easily out of a $500 fee card that I have between what I would have otherwise paid in baggage fees, free flights, access to airport lounges, and things like that. And then the non-financial values, I don't have to hang out in the airport with everybody's crying kids. Like you can go to this sweet little haven of the credit card lounge and have a nice cocktail, sit quietly, and not be bothered by all of the other travelers in the world. So that's a nice little perk. So sometimes value is direct monetary ROI. Sometimes it's convenience. And then other times it's buying your time back. And a great example of this is the guy who mows your lawn. Is the hourly rate for the guy that mows the lawn a little bit high when you look at it? Probably. Am I doing something more productive with my hour that I'm not mowing the lawn on? No. So I used to think about it's only worth paying somebody to do a job if I'm doing something more useful with that hour. And so I would look at, okay, on a Saturday or a Sunday, I don't want to pay somebody to do the lawn because I don't have a better use of that hour. But in reality, if you're somebody like me who hates mowing the lawn, puts off mowing the lawn until it's seven o'clock on a Sunday night, and then really doesn't want to do it so it gets kicked in the next week and then your lawn looks like shit, like you're probably better off just paying somebody to take care of it, to take it off your plate in the first place. Okay, so how do we use this concept in our businesses? How do we, in a professional services business where we're asking people to pay us for our time working on things, increase the perceived value in the customer's eyes? So I'll tell you a story that just happened this week. I had a guy call about his auto accident case. And again, I represent people on a contingency fee basis. And in any given case, we're earning a third of the settlement from the insurance company as our fee. And he's tossing around these hypothetical numbers. And he said, hypothetically, if the case is worth $100,000, your fee is $33,000. I'm like, yeah, like $33,333, yeah, and plus 33 cents. But we're close enough, right? And and he says, that's a lot of money. I'm like, dude, in the beginning of this call, you thought that the asset was worth 500 bucks because he thought that we started calculating the medical costs based on like his actually out-of-pocket medical costs. And that's not how it works in Virginia, which is not really the point of this podcast. The point really is that as professionals, we know where all the levers are to pull to put more dollars in our clients' pockets than they have on their own. And as you look at that and you, from the perceived value customer standpoint, you can go, I don't want to pay this guy $33,000 on the one hand. On the other hand, this thing that I have, this asset, my case, and clients really should look at their cases as assets, right? We're going to trade a release in your case 
for some check with some amount of money, like the asset value from the knowledge that this professional just applied from the case went from $500 to net to me $66,000. And so we've created a ton of value in that case. Now that guy in particular, like I, he's, there's occasionally guys, you just can't get to see the value, right? They, all they see is the price. And so I don't know that he's actually going to become a client, but finding ways in our businesses to show clients the value instead of the price is absolutely where you have to be. Because as long as you're competing on price, somebody's going to be willing to do it cheaper. If you're a trust and estates lawyer, LegalZoom is out there doing wills for $200. I saw a commercial this morning for something called trustandwill.com offering a wills package for $149. And even if you could, as a legal practice, brick and mortar practice compete at that price point, would you want to? I don't know. To do a will for somebody, you at least got to talk to them on the phone probably twice. I've got to dedicate a paralegal to get them the forms to fill out so that I know who goes in what boxes. And even at its lowest level, there's probably a couple of hours of paralegal work. And if we're competing on price at $150, we're down to $12, $15 an hour. How can I pay an employee like that and make any profit for the business? So the last place that you want to be is competing on price. You want to be competing on value. Like here's the big, bad, scary things that happen to you. If you don't have a proper will, if you don't have a will that actually does what you think it's doing, and by the way, if you buy one of these wills online that are one size fits all, it probably is not doing what you think it's doing. The other half of that value proposition is the client's time, right? The understanding in his mind that if he hires us, he doesn't have to go out and become an expert in whatever subject matter we are experts in. He doesn't have to rely on Dr. Google or attorney Google to tell him which levers to pull. And he's not going to get caught by any surprises at the end of the case, having hired us and explaining all of that value to clients in a succinct and concise manner that takes the eyes away from the price tag and puts it on, here's what I'm getting out of the relationship is absolutely critical to having clients, number one, but having clients that'll pay you more for your services, number two. And most lawyers are really bad at pricing their services. We tell lawyers all the time to raise their rates. And all they think about is, well, the clients that I have currently wouldn't pay 2x my current rate, or most of them wouldn't pay 2x my current rate. But here's the math on that. Like, In order to have the same amount of dollars in your pocket at the end of the year, you only need 50% of your clients to be willing to pay 2x your current rate. And so is that true right now? Would 50% of your clients pay you twice as much? If so, you have two options. You could work half as much, or you could go out and find other clients that are willing to pay you that much. What the lawyers are really saying in their mind is that they don't think that they're worth 2x the rate. And so then the question is, cool, if I'm not currently worth 2x my hourly rate, what set of skills would I have to go out and acquire or learn in order to be worth 2x that rate? How would I have to present myself to a client in order to command that rate? Would I have to dress better? Would I have to have a nicer office? Maybe not. Would I have to have a nicer website? Maybe not. And then what would my advertising have to look like? And then what kind of value would we have to deliver to command those rates? And those are really interesting questions. And that's an interesting space to be in rather than, shit, I didn't sign up enough clients last month. I better lower my rates by $150 an hour in order to sign up a couple more clients this month, who, by the way, aren't even going to value my time very highly 
because we don't value very highly what we're paying a little amount of money for. And that's a whole nother interesting concept is like, there's all this free information online, podcasts like mine, YouTube, libraries, books, all that shit is free. But more information really isn't the answer. If more information were the answer, we'd all be billionaires with six-pack abs because all this information is everywhere. Like you can go on YouTube and watch Ivy League college courses all day long. But unless you go out and actually execute on any of that material, and unless you have somebody usually who's holding you accountable to the execution on that material, what good is it? And the reason that most people act is because there's no cost. Like it's easy to engage in this mental masturbation of learning more stuff, reading more books, listening to more podcasts. But if you're actually paying for the thing, you are much more likely to execute on the information that the course or the coach or the mastermind group or the lawyer is giving to you. And you see this, I think, in divorce lawyers. Like we start valuing divorce lawyers' time more when we have to pay them for every email and every phone call. And so you go from having these phone calls where you're not really sure what you need, you're not really sure what to ask, to we have to burn through only 0.3 hours on this call. So let me make sure that I get my questions clear in my mind before I get on the phone with the lawyer. And let me make sure that we pepper through these things and that I really get the answers that I need. Paying for information and paying for access really makes you hone in on what is it that I'm trying to get out of this relationship. But back to the idea of levering up our hourly rate by levering up our skill set. There's this concept that I love by Ryan Serhant, the, the kind of celebrity real estate agent who I'm a huge fan of. And his story is really, like, really he started from almost nothing and he started right in the wake of 9-11 in New York when the entire real estate market was down and nobody wanted to live in New York. And he started out not selling condos and not selling fancy stuff, but putting people into leases and, and rents in apartment buildings. And when you're in that position, you're taking buyers, taking renters to a whole bunch of different apartments all day, every day. And he said, the first time that I got my first listing appointment, where now I can be in one apartment and I can bring people to the apartment, I stopped doing but renting appointments. Okay. And then I was only a listing agent for apartments that were for rent. Life gets a little easier. Paycheck goes up a little bit. First time I was able to represent a buyer in a real estate transaction, I stopped doing rentals. I moved on and now I am only a buyer's agent. First time I got my first seller's contract, now I was only doing selling, right? Again, leveling up, stripping out the things that are harder to do and have a lower hourly rate and only doing the things that have higher hourly rates and then going up and up the page scale. And what would you have to do in order to do that? That's just such an interesting thought experiment. So in my world, it's, I don't do chiropractor cases anymore. I only do physical therapy cases. I don't do physical therapy cases anymore. I only do surgery cases. I don't do surgery cases anymore. I only do brain injury cases. What would you have to do in order to continue to march up that food chain? Because this is a phrase that my real estate friends use a lot is bigger deals are not any harder. They're just bigger. And I think that's true in the law. It's harder in the near term because you have to learn some new things. But once you've learned the new set of skills, then, then you're just applying them to larger and larger cases. And really, it's a matter of positioning much more than it's a matter of anything else. Okay, so last piece on this, because I promised I would get to how to use this as an employee. So I've talked to a bunch of law students 
recently who are entering the job market who have decided that they're not going to go into big law or maybe don't have the opportunity to go into big law because big law firms are not coming to their campuses. And the question is like, what do small law firms pay and how do I even get my foot in the door? And I think you want to focus much less on what they pay and the base salary. And and here's why. Is it important to put food on the table and a roof over your head? Yes. But at a subsistence level, like that's not really all that hard, even in high cost of living places like New York and DC and LA. The reality is if you are willing to not be fancy about it, if you're willing to live at home for a little bit, if you're willing to have roommates, it doesn't take all that much to put food on the table, roof over your head. And then the big question is, how can I add more value to the law firm so that I end up with more value in my pocket at the end of the year? And I think you really have to approach it from that perspective. And and it's probably not like an on the nose question to the firm that you're going to work at. You probably, especially if you have a year to to work up to this, you want to go to other law firms and find out what problems they have to be solved, find out how their associates best add value to the bottom line. And the trick is that most lawyers, I don't think actually know the answer to this, but you want to find, you want to find lawyers that actually understand something outside of build more hours, get more clients, because that's only scalable so far. Like the only way that you can continue to build more hours, get more clients is to have more employees, which increases the overhead. And then you can end up in like a house of cards situation. So there's got to be something beyond work harder, build more hours, but spending some time figuring out what problems law firms have that you can solve and provide soft value to is the way that I would be using my 2L or 3L year to then position myself to write really good cover letters and really good cold emails and go on really good interviews. Because after you talk to five or six or seven law firms, like you're going to understand that we all speak the same language. Like we all have the same problems that kind of rhyme. And if you can come in and speak to the hiring partner or hiring associate or HR manager, speaking the language of a law firm owner instead of as a law student, they're going to get it. And you're only going to gain that expertise by having conversations with lawyers about what are the problems in the law firm. It's not about the law. It's about what are the real problems in your firm? What problems are we solving for clients? Yes. What problems do you have as an owner? And so I would encourage you to go out and just knock on doors and try to have as many of those conversations as you can with solo and small law firm owners during law school. Not not necessarily about like, what is it like to take a deposition? What is it like to cross-examine somebody? Yeah, have some of that conversation. But if you're entrepreneurial and, and you really want to take control of your own future and make as much money as you want to make, you've got to be having conversations and putting yourself in rooms where they're having conversations about the business of law. And by the way, you're probably not hearing any of this from your career services. You're probably not hearing any of this from any of your professors at law school. If that resonates with you, follow me on LinkedIn because I talk about this a lot on LinkedIn hit subscribe to this podcast. I talk about it a lot on this podcast. We talk with law firm owners. We talk with successful business people from all across the world. And I think it's much more interesting than red car hit a blue car and there was a neck injury and a head injury, which is what I find myself doing 95% of the time. I happen to be good at it. It happens to make me a lot of money, but it's not what I love doing and that's okay. And if that resonates with you, even if you're in law school, learning how to be a lawyer, Just understand that there are places in the world where it's okay to be a lawyer, not necessarily love the law. All right. That's my Friday morning confessional to you all. If this resonates, hit subscribe and I'll see you again next week.